Welcome to Belmont Voices. My name is Jack Benz, and I'm your guide to some of the stories of some of the people in one small New York neighborhood. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Belmont Voices. Oh, I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. Because I get to speak with Mr. Frank Franz, who is a longtime resident of the Belmont neighborhood. Now, don't let his last name set you off, because this man is a hundred percent Italian American, and he has at least a thousand colorful stories about the people and places of Little Italy. And what we're presenting to you in this short uh, episode is just the best of the best. And helping me find the best of the best and do the editing is my friend Jason Cannon, who came on board with this episode. So quality's better. Storytelling, I think, is much better, and I think you're going to enjoy it. Well, what is your last name again? A Franz, F-R-A-N-Z. Frank Franz. Easy to remember. Italian sounding name, is it? Well, it might not be, but it's right. Well, in, in Italy, they refer to those German-sounding names up north as Alti Italia, High Italian. And you had said uh, that your was it your grandmother that was kind of caught behind the lines during the war. First World War, yeah, First World for the whole war. She was behind the uh, Austro-Hungarian trenches, yeah. Yeah, and then her husband had come here. He was here building the house that we're in. Oh, really? He built this house? He built it with his own hands, yeah. He worked downtown when you saved up a little money for some brick. You built it. It took 10 years to build because, you know, a poor Italian immigrant couldn't get a loan back then. Sure. So he essentially built the house for cash. When it was built, it was his. Just a piece at a time. Yeah, but it, yeah, but it took like... Actually, more than 10 years because my grandmother came over in 20 and they still couldn't move in for it for a few years. They were living down the block. And you, your family still lives here or you're it? I'm it. Uh, you, so the, I'm the last friends. <laughs> had you kind of gotten into real estate uh, because you were already in real estate? No, I wasn't in real estate at all. I, I got into real estate originally to buy the house right across the street from me. Because at that time, it was occupied by a bunch of students who were very noisy and rude to my family. So I bought the place to throw them out. <laughs> that was it. That was the only reason. I had no interest, in, no interest in ever owning property. And once I bought that, then my neighbors saw that and said, so since it was a close neighborhood, before they put their houses up for sale, they come say, Frankie, you know, you bought the house across the street. You're interested in my house. And every house I bought off of someone I know. Every oh, house was like yeah. that. I didn't go to real estate agents. I didn't see for rent signs, for sale signs, or that. Someone I knew would come to me and say, Frankie, I'm thinking of selling the building. You interested? Yeah. So uh, I have a personal connection to every piece of property I own. <laughs> and had you added a lot or just kind of kept a few and kind of back and forth? Or? Uh, no. I, I just saw, I, I, ne I never had what I consider a lot. There's landlords around here with, you know, 10, 20, 30 buildings or more. I got nine pieces, and most of them are, you know, one, two, three family houses. I think I was saying the biggest thing I have is uh, a nine-family small apartment building like that. Yeah. And uh, I didn't pick them up with any intention other than somebody offered them to me. They were a reasonable price, and I had extra money at the time from other business activities, yeah. you know. And, uh, and I was buying when, you know, when no one else was buying. Sure. And, I, and, and I felt that even back in the 70s when I couldn't, you know, when the Bronx was really taking a dump. And I couldn't afford to buy a house. I just felt that no matter how bad the Bronx gets, which it got pretty bad, yeah. well, worse than I think anyone ever expected, it's still part of New York City. It's not going to stay like this forever. No, it's, not. it's just not. So, uh, you know, uh, I, I didn't turn down. But, for instance, the house next door to us, 
which uh, just sold for uh, 1.7 million or 1.75 within the last six months, uh, I turned down for $42,000 when back, you... in the, back in the 70s. Because wow. I just couldn't, ha I was in a position to buy a house. Yeah, sure. Yeah. The houses I got across the street, which are probably now worth probably close to a million dollars, which I paid two twenty four. We turned off. We turned down the original owner for uh, twenty six thousand dollars. Wow. Yeah. So I could have got in really far back, but <laughs> so I, 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 I think I first bought my first piece of property in eighty nine instead of seventy seven, yeah. and just in that period, prices went up. You know five to tenfold wow, just yeah. so at that time a lot of people say what are you buying for you could have got this for sixteen thousand now it's two hundred thousand but now it's a million so yeah, yeah. you <laughs> so know overall, but it took yeah. another 30 years to do that yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah if you were to tell a person what growing up in this area was like how would you you know it was a, a poor simple neighborhood but the the feeling of, of neighborhood the feeling of uh of uh, friendship and neighbors and everything in the neighborhood. It was more the mentality of a small town as opposed to part of a big city. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't trade growing up here to grow up in Greenwich or Beverly Hills or any fancy, more esteemed place someplace else. You talk to people from this neighborhood, they'll tell you the same thing. And a lot that moved away that said they were never as happy any place they traveled in the world as when they were kids growing up here. But it wasn't so much a matter of location it certainly wasn't a matter of the housing which was all depression and pre-depression era housing sure. the people that were here made it you know so entertaining and comforting to yeah. be from belmont and pretty self-contained you wouldn't necessarily go to the city a lot there were people that never left this neighborhood when i was a kid and so i'm talking about through the 50s and 60s a lot most people still did not own a car mm -hmm. and most people left this neighborhood for nothing we had doctors here back then, dentists, lawyers, furniture stores, TV stores. Everyone did all their shopping, and nobody left the neighborhood. I mean, yeah, some people would take the train downtown to go to work and come back. But as kids growing up, we never left this neighborhood. And certainly, most of the women who back then were mainly housewives and mothers, you know, shopped and had their friends and family. You know, you met somebody, if they were with a couple of people, chances are those other people, if they weren't their brothers and sisters, they were their cousins. Yeah. So I never came home from school. Or rarely came home without one of my aunts sitting at the table inside with my mother. Yeah. You know, every day of the week. Wow. So that's what it was like right here. So a lot of people didn't leave, yeah. you know, uh, uh, unless uh, they had to get something that was not in the neighborhood. I guess that's where you got the small town mentality. Nobody would even think of getting in the car and driving to a supermarket where stuff might be a little cheaper. Because you bought from people, because you knew them, because the quality was there, the service mm -hmm. was there. You know, yeah. and they were your neighbors. Yeah. When I first moved here, I was talking to the, the people at uh, Mount Carmel. Mm -hmm. the, the school or the church? No, the, the church. church, the pastoral staff. And I asked, like, where is there a young adult group that's connected to the parish? And they said, no, there isn't one. And, and we, don't, we don't, there aren't a lot of young people in the neighborhood. There are older people and there are little kids. Uh, but, and also, we think that young adults should move someplace where there's opportunity because there really isn't in this area. I take issue with all that. There are yeah. a lot of children in this neighborhood, but they're all over the streets. When I grew up, uh, there were no city resources for children here. All the resources were at the church. Mm -hmm. And we had a football league. We had a bowling league. I mean, a bowling league with like 20 teams. We had a baseball league uh, in, uh, in what was called the Youth Center on uh, Belmont Avenue. We had our own 
parish newspaper that we wrote up and sent out to be printed every week, 12,000 copies, told the parishes on Sunday. We had our own photography club that took the pictures that went in the newspaper that was written. We had bingo, we had a discussion club, we had uh, dances, we had uh, movies every Saturday, a movie program for kids in the basement of the church. And during the summer, we showed movies on the street, two, 3,000 people would come with their own chairs to sit down and watch. Um, we had a day, a day camp all summer long, taking kids all over the place. So there was an awful lot to do here. But that's how involved the church was. We had seven feasts during the summer. Now we have one. And two of the feasts ran for 17 days each. Yeah. And uh, the amount of preparation for things like, you know, Corpus Christi and, and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, religious activities over the course of the year, every, the most minor ones were all observed with huge parades. I mean, we had 300 altar boys would go out and march. And, <laughs> and you, know, it, it, you know, it might be very old-fashioned. You know, uh, people aren't as dedicated, I don't think, to any church as much as they were back then. But again, it's part of the fabric of the community. It's a sure. shared experience. Everyone feels part yeah. of this. And it brings people together. So it was just as important as a social activity as it was as a religious activity. Yeah, very much. And, and, and church, I won't say the church, because when I say the church, I'm typically referring to the Roman Catholic Church. But any church, mm -hmm. any religion, in any community is part of the fabric of that community to different degrees. Over here, it was the fabric of a community back then. Because yeah. there, was no, there was no governmental resources that were part of it. Everything that was provided was always centered around our, our parish. And it, yeah. it's really a shame that it's, it's changed so much because those were good days for, for me, for my family, for the community at large. And, and they're, they're really gone for you know, a multitude of reasons. Mm -hmm. but, uh, and I feel bad for kids growing up that don't have that feeling in their community. You know, yeah. I mean, now kids grow up there, they're scared of other people, they live in communities that are dangerous, they're afraid to come out, you know. And I just can't imagine that. I mean, we would walked all over the street any time of the day and night. There was never an issue that anyone was gonna get hurt or anything was going to happen, or that anyone was going to do anything illegal. I mean, people lived, my grandmother lived in this house until she was 100 years old, never locked the door or windows, even yeah. when she went out. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, and I'm sure it's still like that in parts of the country or in other countries, but I mean, here it was, it was like that here in the Bronx. And I think that's one of the attractions about this neighborhood today, because that was something that was in common with old neighborhoods, regardless of cultural background. It was just, uh, you know, any strong culture has a sense of family, of tradition, of religion. And we still have that here. So people from all different types of ethnic and cultural backgrounds, when they come here, still get that old world feeling. Mm -hmm. that's, not, that's not an act. It's real. You know, there's it's plenty true. of place, people building places now to try and make them look like they're 100 years old yeah. and that they've been around. These are, you know. Yeah, and it takes, a, it takes a 100 years to build up a community yeah. like that, the social ties that are part of a community like that. Sometimes when I'm in the neighborhood and I'm, in, I'm mm -hmm. dressed as a priest, yeah. I feel I'm suddenly part of the stage set or I, I am a priest mm -hmm. but I feel like I'm like when when uh, old Italian families show up they're glad to see like oh and there's still a priest here right I mean we grew up with the priests coming you know and walking the streets with the cassocks and with the hats with mm -hmm. the beanies on them and stuff and the Monsignors coming out with the red piping and the bishop all in red you know and yeah, stuff and it's uh, it's uh, it brings back fond memories of uh, of, of comfort and community yeah. and inclusion so it is nice to see a priest in, in his uniforms, and so many of them don't anymore, yeah. you know. And uh, it's a shame, because I feel that the, 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 the decline of the church is a significant factor in the decline of community and neighborhoods. Uh, not just like the Catholic Church, but uh, many religions that are under 
various social and political pressure yeah. nowadays, if not outright attack yeah. by, by people in the government and different factors. Mm-hmm. You, you want to get people when they're young. And when I say get them, I mean get them to, uh, to teach them some moral code, some sense of self-respect, because many of these kids are growing up in the street. And it's, it's a disservice to the children of this community because now they're in a place where there is opportunity and potentially, you know, you could break the cycle. Yeah. You know, like I said, I've been here since the day I was born and, uh, you know, plenty of people, good people, and this neighborhood was poor back then. And plenty of good people came out of this neighborhood, would, did very well, uh, including some people came out of this neighborhood, became billionaires, sure. you know. But again, you gotta have you have to have the drive, and you have to ha- come from the right. You have to have the right family support yeah. to get you in school every day, to you know, to uh, uh, teach you how to focus on the important things in life: self-respect, responsibility, mm-hmm. duty to yourself and your community, uh, pro- you know, self-esteem, a professional sense of ethics. And you know, you don't, you know, you might study that when you're in college, but you get taught that when you're a child. It comes sure. from your family. It comes from your community. Yeah. And it comes from the church, or at least in our parish it did. Mm-hmm. I can remember being in the seventh grade, Father Malazzo, who was the head of the uh, altar boys, would call in groups of altar boys, five, six, seven at a time, into the rectory. And he would lecture us on things like, you know, what's your middle name? Use your middle initial. Be proud of it. How to shake hands with somebody. You know, you gri- you know you're a man. You grip a guy's hands. Hygiene. <laughs> You know, brushing your teeth and goggling, using an anti You know, when you're a kid, when, you, when you're 10, 12 years old, just playing in the street, you don't always think of all these things. But he taught us how to be men, how to conduct yourself like it. And it started at that age. You know, the girls got something similar, you know, from the nuns and stuff. Tell me about the social clubs that uh, used to and still are. Part of the mix. There's very few social clubs left. When, uh, when again, when I was with? younger, they were they were very common. We had no bars. In Italy, you didn't have bars. You had social clubs. It was just mm-hmm. a different. Oh, I see. And uh, most of the social clubs, they, they varied. They were typically oriented towards a particular group. For instance, some would be for Italians who only spoke Italian. Some would be for Italian Americans. Some would be oriented towards younger people, kids. Some of them were based around a soccer team. All the guys from Naples who loved the Na- Naples soccer team would be in, in a place. So everyone was welcome everywhere, but uh, those were the different mm. factors in the neighborhood and people hang around with people they have something in common with, you know? So we had a lot of variety even here. Uh, so Friday, Saturday night, you went out and people just bounced from one social club to another. I mean, almost all of them served liquor, not all of them. Most of them had a bar and liquor. Uh, some of them had food. By food, I don't mean food like a restaurant. They had a little kitchen in the back and would frequently like make a couple of dishes that anyone who was there could have some of. Yeah. Uh, some of them uh, had pool tables. Some of them organized card games, friendly card games. Uh, you know. What was the one you would go to? Oh, I went to a bunch of them. I even had one at oh, one time. Did you? <laughs> did you? At a social club on Hughes Avenue when I was 17. For me and my friends, we were all kids. We had a, a place uh, 15, 16 by 25 feet. You know, with a you know, toilet in the back. We built a little bar that maybe five, six people could sit at. We had a, a refrigerator with soda and stuff in it and Stewart sandwiches. I don't know if you remember those. Those were packaged sandwiches that they sold you a little, not a microwave, but like a heating device that you would put them in and you could heat up hot sandwiches and hot dogs. We had a pinball machine and a telephone and an air conditioner in the back. <laughs> and, uh, and, and a TV, and that's where we hung out day and night because who had any money to go anywhere? <laughs> 
<laughs> so we're in the place seven days a week, and we organized card games, and we had, uh, you know, 18-year-old birthday parties for our friends and sweet 16s for the girls we knew there and stuff, and, and it was fun, and that lasted a lot of years. So uh, that was just one type. But there were some that were, uh, that were quite swanky, that were almost like nightclubs when you went into them. So, you know, I bounced into any of probably just all the time I had, I'm thinking of seven or eight of them that I went to regularly, and everybody did. And that's why people didn't leave this neighborhood. Everyone went out in the neighborhood. There's you know? plenty, plenty to do here. Right. And those places, some of them were open 24 hours a day. You know, there were no drugs. There was no thievery. There were no fights. It was just part of the fabric of the community. And quite frankly, having legitimate people out on the street around the clock kept crime down. Oh, and there was no crime here. So what do you think people get wrong about the Bronx? Well, one, I still think that the, they, they, they think the crime level is the way it used to be, and it's not anywhere in the Bronx that bad. And some of what used to be the worst neighborhoods are, are, are certainly not the worst neighborhoods like anymore. Like Hunts Point? Well, point. yeah, Hunts Point, South Bronx. I mean, uh, uh, my first, uh, I want to say my first job, my first real job working for the government was down in Hunts Point. And there were streets that just had potholes that you could lose your tires in that were like that for years because there was nobody lived on blocks. Entire blocks were burnt out. In some cases, buildings that actually crumbled and the rubble was across the street and it was there for years because nobody even went down these blocks. There was one intersection that looked like Dresden after the British carpet bombed it. And did for it was, years. Um, and did for years. No one was down there. And um, There's that famous photo on Charlotte. Oh, Charlotte Street. Well, yeah, that's not even Jim really, that's not, that's not Hunts Point. Charlotte Street is no, right there. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, it could, it's not quite, but it's certainly reminiscent of suburbia Long Island in, on Charlotte Street now. <laughs> um, and, and not to mention, uh, you know, the Piano District, quote unquote, which is, uh, I'm not sure if that's in Morrisania or Mothaven, right by the Willis Avenue Bridge. We're there building luxury, luxury condos and hotels oh, now. Oh, I was down there. It's nice. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's just, and it's still just the tip of the iceberg. And uh, more people are moving into the Bronx. Uh, real estate development is interested in the Bronx. Businesses are in so The whole Bronx is, is improving dramatically, although, quite frankly, uh, I would trade in a second for the old Bronx myself. Yeah. But uh, it's improving as, as I knew it would, and it's got a long way to go. You know, we're, we're still years behind Brooklyn and Queens. But, uh, you know, the Bronx is, is going to be a, a prosperous, you know, safe place and good place to raise your family again. Sure. And, and not to say that the whole Bronx ever was terrible. I mean, there were, there were problem spots, as there were in, in every borough. People mm -hmm. forget, you know, when people think of Manhattan, they just think of uh, the Upper East Side or the village. You know, north of 96th Street, there was a lot of bad... Matter of fact, south of 96th Street had a lot of bad neighborhoods. People forget that Lincoln Center was a giant slum before yeah. they built Lincoln Center in the Upper West Side. So, you know, as one would think, Manhattan turned around first because it's the center of where all the money is. And then when Manhattan became too expensive to live in, it moved to the closest areas, Long Island City, Williamsburg, you know, and moved down to Brooklyn. Brooklyn has gotten, so people would move into Brooklyn to be close to Manhattan, but Brooklyn has developed so much now that people move to Brooklyn to be in Brooklyn. Yeah. People move into Queens to be close to Brooklyn. And that's wonderful. You know, it's, uh, you know, prosperity works for everybody. You know, yeah. I, I know people, gentrification has become a bit of a dirty word, but a community has to have a vital business district where people could get what they need and also mm -hmm. congregate and celebrate and relax and entertain themselves. Every community has to have that strip that people yeah. congregate on. And that's those are retail businesses. Retail businesses make their money off the people in the neighborhood. People have to have expendable cash to support that. 
when people with uh, expendable cash move into a poor neighborhood, businesses get better. Businesses employ more people. More people want to live there. Better housing gets built. Older housing is renovated. Yeah. You know, and sometimes the, char the character of a community changes. Sometimes the cultural background changes. But you know, 400 years ago, the whole city was Dutch. Sure. So it's changed over and over again. This neighborhood was Dutch. Yeah. Sure. And then it became Italian. Then it became uh, Italian-Albanian. Now it's Italian-Albanian-Mexican. The whole South Bronx was Jewish. So I don't see gentrification as a bad thing as long as people aren't getting run out of their houses by corrupt real estate companies yeah. that are forcing people out. And that has happened, and that's against the law, and the government should take care of that. That's what they're there for, to enforce yeah. the law. So as long as people are not practicing illegal techniques to force people out, I don't see what's the matter with increasing the economic uh, viability sure. of communities. Because if it's not economically viable, nobody wants to build there. You yeah. can't make any money. So now we're spending tax dollars that could help other poor people to support, to pay private builders so that they'll build housing for people without money to move into. And I'm not saying there shouldn't be housing for the poor, but I'm saying maybe we should concentrate on having fewer poor people so yeah. that we don't have to spend as much resources on them and we can spend it on other things. Sure. You know, so, oh, you know, so that's why I think the best thing that the, anyone could do for anyone is give them a job and let them live their own lives. So you, you were uh, one of the... the the people or the person that started the uh, Belmont Business Improvement District. Mm -hmm. Tell me about how that happened. Well, that actually goes back 20 years when we formed the precursor organization, which was the Belmont uh, Small Business Administration, which was a uh, not-for-profit merchant group uh, that we developed in 1998-99. Uh, it was just the time McDonald's was moving into the neighborhood. We heard rumors McDonald's was going to open a store on Arthur Avenue. Nobody wanted it. Sure. We just considered the food garbage and still do. I don't know if I could get sued from McDonald's for that. I guess I shouldn't talk. I personally never ate in one or, or any fast food restaurant, period, except for White Castle around the corner, which we grew up with. Otherwise, I've never been in any other type of fast food restaurant. And we just did not think this uh, represented the community, much as they had riots in Rome when they opened up the first sure, one there, yeah. actual riots. So a lot of people objected, and we had a merchant organization before that, but it became obvious to everyone that they were completely ineffectual in doing anything anymore. So we formed a new organization, and at a meeting I wasn't present at, I was elected president. Congratulations. Yes. So it became known after that. If you don't want to get elected president, show up. So we started with that organization, which was just donations from the neighborhood, and, uh, and I think we, we did a lot with the, the funds that we had to... Uh, at that time, just to keep the community in people's eyes. That's, uh, that's when people were leaving the Bronx left and right, and we wanted people to realize Little Italy is still here with good products, you know. I mean, the neighborhood turned from people who just lived here buying Italian-American products to Italian-Americans that left that came back for Italian-American products to what we have now is people of all cultures, all types of Americans who enjoy Italian food. Italian food's not just for Italians anymore. So, you know, we get everybody coming here to shop now, which is why the neighborhood's doing so well now. Even though our neighborhood never suffered the extreme urban blight that many parts of the Bronx suffered, it was that overall reputation, the Bronx, you know, right. like that. So we fought to overcome that. But we went as far as we can, and then this, uh, uh, you know, government-private partnership called a business improvement district, which is a very specific legal Mm -hmm. term and, 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 uh, and organization, we became aware of and we decided this is the next logical step to continue to promote and develop the neighborhood as a group. And so the old Belmont Small Business Administration morphed 
through paperwork and city, you know, we created the bid and closed up the old organization. And that happened in 90, uh, excuse me, in 2000, what, 2019 now? So I'd say that's probably around 2011, 2012. Uh, the Business Improvement District has considerably more resources because there is an assessment on every property in the Business Improvement yeah, District yeah. that is paid to the community, not to the city. The city collects it, but they don't keep one dime of it. They collect it with the real estate taxes and that amount is funded, refunded to the Business Improvement uh, uh, Executive Board who are, which is main, by law mainly composed of landlords from the community mm -hmm. because this is an economic development organization. We're not allowed to get into social activities. We don't help with housing or rentals or, or uh, social issues. We're forbidden to get involved in anything except the economic development. Uh, so, you know, uh, what used to be a $30,000, $40,000 a year budget has now jumped up to a half a million dollar a year budget, allowing us to hire professional staff, to hire professional supplementary security, professional supplementary cleaning and sanitation uh, people, uh, hire a professional marketing company, uh, have an office open six days a week in the community to help businessmen with uh, issues and problems to uh, educate and announce how businessmen, you know, changes in laws, people having trouble with fines, uh, serve as a liaison between them and the numerous city agencies, which are a nightmare to deal with, mm -hmm. even with paid help, let alone when you're trying to do it on your own and run a business that you spend six and a half days in, 10 yeah. hours a day, yeah. which is the way most of our businessmen work up here. Is uh, Little Italy a good place to have a business at, at, at the moment? Uh, well, certainly the businesses that are there are doing very well. But then again, you got to remember, most of them had between 50 and 100 years of building up uh, a clientele and establishing a reputation. But we have new, uh, we have new businesses opening all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, some of them that uh, are oriented to the uh, uh, Little Italy sector of business. Some of them that are just businesses for the local residents of the community and of the Bronx. And certainly they're doing a lot better than before. We used to have a high vacancy rate years ago. A lot of stores closed out. Vacancy rate now is like 2 or 3%, which is mm -hmm. less than most neighborhoods in Manhattan. And of that 2 or 3%, a lot of those stores are closed because the landlords don't want to rent them for various yeah, sure. reasons, you know. Yeah. And um, what used to be, you know, stores of, let's say, questionable character and not necessarily conducting themselves in a manner that would be considered uh, an asset to the community, They've been re replaced with nice cafes, nice restaurants, professional offices, and, and a number of other businesses like that that are clearly much better run, yeah. much better uh, uh, used by the community and uh, of a greater asset to the community. So w w I'm not going to ask you to recommend a restaurant because of your position, but what do you think is the, the restaurant or the, the cafe in Little Italy that, is, that people don't know about and they should? That's hard to say. You know, every restaurant, well, again, I don't recommend a restaurant because they are all a little different. And eating is a very personal thing. Sure. So what I like, someone else might like. You know, uh, 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 among a lot of people, the key is always the sauce. You know, uh, a, a gravy, as we call it, marinara sauce, comes in a million different forms of, of sweetness, of dryness, of how smooth it is or how lumpy it is. And everyone has a personal taste. That's why everyone, they love this gravy or not that gravy. And... Uh, you know, my mother would go to certain places. She was very picky. She only went to two or three restaurants because they made the sauce the way she likes it. <laughs> so I don't like to say what I think is good or bad because it's only from my personal point of view. Where do and you eat? I, I eat at a lot of places because I'm here and, and I don't cook. So I eat out every night. So I, I eat at okay. the mall pretty regularly. 
but there's certainly some some places that are a little bit more uh, uh, traditional foods. Some are a little bit more experimental. Some are a little bit more children friendly. Some are more like for the guys, you know, whatever, you know, like for instance, you take a a place like Dominic's, great restaurant, very traditional menu, very old-fashioned place, loud. It's like, you know, if you're going with your friends to the Yankee game, you know, you go there and everyone drinks and has a great time. Not that the other places don't fill up too, but just as an example, you know, uh, uh, you want little, you want very old world, Mario's restaurant, mm -hmm. which has been there for over 100 years, mm -hmm. is a trip to the past. You know, uh, you know, uh, waiters with tuxedos and a very traditional family menu. You know, great place. Family has, I don't know, 10 generations of chefs going back to Italy in their family. Um, you like uh, a neighborhood place, you know, Rigoletto's or Antonio's where all the neighborhood guys hang out. By neighborhood guys, I mean neighborhood, uh, uh, neighborhood residents and yeah. restaurant owners as well as people from all over coming there. You know, you take Rigoletto's on Saturday night and the owners and their friends sing and they have music and it's sort of like, you know, having the, the, that party in grandma's basement where the whole family came over for a holiday and everyone, you had to go to the basement, it was the only room big enough to fit everybody in, you know. Uh, you know, great warm place. Um, you, you have Roberto's who has uh, more of a, a newer trendy form of Italian cooking, which is very well known. Uh, you have uh, Zero Autonove, like Zero Autonove, who, who has the same, owned by the same people, uh, which and is and Fiasco as well, right? And Fiasco, we're all owned by 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 Roberto, Nate, well, born in Italy, but been in the neighborhood for many years. Great guy, crazy guy. He 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 wouldn't resent me saying that because with the kind of the, the way he works and what he's done, you got to be crazy to do it. Guy's a workaholic, and not, not only does he open these great restaurants, he used to do half of the construction work in them himself. You know, because he wants it just a certain way. Very particular. Wonderful man and his family who were all involved in the business. You have a little hole in the wall, Tradenoy, across the street from the church, which uh, you'd very be tempted to drive past. And uh, the, uh, the uh, chef owner, Chef Marco, who owns the place, does all the cooking, makes his own pastas and desserts. The guy's, the guy's just wonderful. And it's a little place, and he doesn't even want to take a big party or rent a place out because he just wants to... He wants to cook every meal himself the way he does. He was trained in Italy after, after the war. He, I think I told you, he was actually Sofia Loren's personal oh. chef oh, in Rome them. back oh. in the 60s. Wow. So you figure Sofia Loren probably knows Italian food well and could probably hire whoever she wants. And she hired Marco back when he was a kid in Italy to cook. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to leave one out, but there's just so many sure. of them. So. Uh, take no inference that I mentioned only these, because there's, because there's Ann and Tony's, and there's Enzo's, and there's Jabasi, sure. and there's San Gennaro. I mean, there's so many of them, and they all have their, you yeah. know, their, 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 they're all, you know, twerked a little differently. Yeah. So I would say come and eat at them all and figure out which ones well, you like I've, best yourself. I've been trying. I've been trying. That's my goal. Where you know. are you going to dinner tonight? Uh, tonight, I'm actually going uh, down to a place on 57th Street called Quality Italian. I belong to a food and wine club, and we're having a dinner there.